Welcome to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast, where successful entrepreneurs get their brains picked so you can apply mindset tricks and game-changing tactics that will help you become unstoppable. Now, here's your host, Daniel Geffen. Hi, fellow listeners, and welcome to episode 32 of Can I Pick Your Brain? Today, I'll be picking the brain of Lisa Bodell. Lisa is a serial entrepreneur, best-selling author, teacher, and globally recognized leader and pioneer in the field of futuring and innovation. Lisa is the founder and CEO of FutureThink, which enables organizations to embrace change and become world-class innovators. Her book, Start an Innovation Revolution, was named one of the best business books of 2012 by Booz & Co. She has appeared on Fox News and in publications such as Fast Company, Forbes, Cranes, Business Week, The New York Times, Wired, Investors Business Daily, Harvard Business Review, and The Futurist. Lisa, welcome to the show and thanks for letting me pick your brain. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, you've been around, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> Let's define that a little bit. <laughs> right. Well, I'm talking about the publications, obviously. Um, now, yeah. You seem to have a passion for cutting the crap and getting down to the meat. Were you always like that? I mean, what were you like yeah. growing up? Oh, I love it. You know, no one said it that way before, but that's a pretty good way, if I'm being honest with myself, to sum it up. I'm a very practical straightforward person Mm -hmm. for better or worse and uh yeah i just because i like to get things done and um yeah i I, that's that's really me i'm not a very superfluous small talk kind of person and uh, i always like to figure out ways to to solve problems and that's where a lot of my books come from right now is how can we just solve problems in simple ways versus getting caught up in all the the minutiae the details and the stuff that doesn't matter you know, you, you, it's, it's very interesting because just just for the sake of our listeners, I want to just mention that in the uh, pre-chat, uh, when I was chatting with Lisa before, she just got right to it. She said, well, listen, if we can make this a 15-minute, you know, interview, then, then you know, we'll just go for 15 minutes. If it stretches out to 30, we'll get to 30. You know, I normally do about a 45-minute interview, guys. So you can imagine I'm sitting here going, oh, God, this is going to be interesting. But... Um, <laughs> But I guess it's all it's all part of your sort of philosophy, isn't it? It's about get down to it, just get over with it and finished. It sounds like my mother-in-law almost. Um, yeah. well, <laughs> I kind of feel like we've, we've become addicted to, we think that more means value. And that's not the case. It's what matter has value. And so we've got to get out of this trap of feeling like we have to fill time. That's why meetings are long. We have to fill interviews. We have to have longer books. We have to have more words. We we don't. We just have to get to the thing that matters. And that's why everyone is always so pleasantly surprised when they have something that solves a problem that's just so simple, that's Mm. so refreshing, that makes you go, why didn't I think of that? That's the person I want to be. I want to be the person that gives people something so simple where they're like, well, I have no excuse not to try that. It's so simple. It changed my life. And because uh, those are the things I appreciate. So I want to mm. practice what I preach. We should call you Mrs. Parkinson's Law. How about that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? That has pretty much sums up your whole philosophy. It's, it's Parkinson's Law. You know, get it done. Get it done now and forget the rest. Yeah. Forget the clutter. I'm like the closet organizer of, uh, of the business world. So I guess, like, introduce us to you. What was it like growing up? What were you like as a child? What were your parents like? 
it was well it was a very normal childhood you know i have to say i was very concerned Sports. I was very creative, but I also I don't realize it until recently. I was very entrepreneurial. Both my parents were entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. I never, you know, when you look back in your little yearbooks or those, those, those um, I art tried, projects I that your I, parents I avoid, save. I avoid looking back at my yearbook. <laughs> you do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. My hair wasn't so great. I didn't look so good, but I uh, I have to laugh because you know when they say things like in kindergarten and they ask you what do you want to be when you grow up. Right. Mine never said I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be a futurist. I want to be an author. I you know I think I said something like teacher, which is related to what I do. But mm. anyway, you know you just kind of follow what's happening around you and my parents were entrepreneurs so they were very independent they had their own businesses and I kind of grew up that way and you know my my earliest memory of being entrepreneurial was entrepreneurial and creative I uh, I lived in this small town in Michigan you know in the midwest of the United States and I lived on a cul-de-sac so my you know my road dead ended into this little roundabout area and in the middle were these kind of pine trees and things and it was like a rock garden and I would go in there forever and find these interesting rocks and I would paint them which sounds silly but my friends and I would paint them and then I got the idea of rather than having all these you know these rocks painted with different pictures and happy faces why don't we go around the neighborhood and sell them (laughs) that was the early days of Instagram wasn't it for you right it it really was (laughs) and so you know who knew that I I would of course went around to my neighbors with these with my friends with these baskets of rocks saying do you want to buy a rock of course who wants to buy a rock no one does <laughs> but from a child they they feel obligated and of course I felt like then I was some great entrepreneur because I made a lot of money and that's where it started I was creative but I would sell things and and uh, it kind of took off from there I guess very cool now Lisa I went on your website and it says here are some facts about Lisa which one do you mm-hmm. think is a lie Number one, I was a professional tennis instructor. Well, I hope you were because I love tennis. I play three times a week. Number two, I was in an emergency crash landing on an airplane. I I kind of want to say I hope that happened because this would make this interview really exciting. But on the other hand, a bit morbid. Uh, Number three, I've completed seven marathons, which is pretty incredible. So which one of those is a lie? Well, I'm going to ask you first. Which one do you think? What do you think? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So I want to say that the emergency crash landing on an airplane, that doesn't really happen to every, you know, everyone you meet. But, <laughs> but then it would, like, it would just be too obvious, right? So I'm going to kind of say professional tennis instructor. Mm. So I have only completed two marathons. Ooh. There it is. And I hope to do more. In fact, with my kids, that's my goal is that they're getting the ages now where they might want to run with me to, to different places. So, no, I, I, in fact, did coach kids um, to get onto the circuit. I used to be a pretty good tennis player. Now, not so much. Okay. Um, and, yes, I was in an emergency crash landing on an airplane. So that's my little claim to fame, which is ironic because, you know, I'm on you know over 100 planes a year now with all my speaking. And it took me a while to get over my fear of flying. And I had to kind of, I had to face my fear. It was, it happened in 1990. I was on an American Airlines flight and I, I was flying from Dallas to Chicago where I was living at the time. And um, we at takeoff, right when our back wheels were getting off, there was an explosion in the plane. It no. filled with smoke and the plane started to level off. And those are the days where they didn't have locked cockpits and things like that. And so an off-duty pilot 
from uh, that was flying, you know, to get to another destination, suddenly unbuckled and ran right into the cockpit. And no one knew what was going on. People started to cry. Oh my goodness! By this whole thing, it turned. Yeah, it turned out that our our landing gear we didn't get off in time, and our landing gear. Thank God, we we got off in the nick of time, and our wheels exploded. So it was the burning rubber that was filling smoke on the plane and causing all these terrible smells, and we couldn't get our landing gear up. So we had too much drag to um, get us to Chicago. We would have run out of fuel, and we were too full in terms of gas to land right then because we had to land on the belly of the plane because our landing gear was stuck. Right, so, so can we I had just to... paint a picture here? So you're in the air, mm-hmm. in, in the airplane, the wheels are gone. And you're just kind of floating. Well, you're floating and you don't know what's going on until they came on with the good news, bad news, which was, you know, good news. Everything's okay. It was just a little explosion. Just a little. (laughs) Just a little explosion, guys. (laughs) Just a little explosion. Don't don't pay any attention to that burning smell and smoke filling the the plane. But you're going to be okay. We're just going to have to be a little unconventional here. We can't can't get to Chicago because we don't have enough fuel. Can't land yet because we'd explode too much gas in the belly of the plane. So we're just going to kind of fly at fast speeds at a low altitude and circle the airport here until we burn enough fuel to have a crash landing. So we Oh, sat. my God. <laughs> and we didn't have, have uh, oh, you know, uh, they didn't have monitors or TV on the planes then, right? You couldn't watch movies. It was well, who would want to watch a movie at that point? I mean, cry. how long well, were you going for? Uh, two hours. And then they, wow. they, you know, they brought out the bar cart and all that kind of fun stuff to get people a little bit... <laughs> Fun <laughs> and uh, and then we landed. So they foamed the runway. It was lined with with ambulances and fire trucks. And we we landed. They said it'll be like if all four tires on your car, you know, exploded and went flat at once. And be ready to land a few times on the belly of the plane. But everyone will be okay. And wow. uh, and we did. And I have to tell you, it was at the time it didn't seem that scary. But the next time I got on a plane, I definitely had. Um, I, I really was upset for a long time and I just, you know, once you do it enough, you get over it. And wow. so that's, that's true. I was in an emergency crash landing and at least you know, it's a fun story to talk about. Yeah. And you could put it on your website. I, I really like the fact that you have that on your website. It kind of humanizes who you are. You know, it, it's, I think it's, I think it's, I think it was very smart. Well, you know, what's funny about you bringing this up is of all the things that we tried to put on our website, you know, we teach innovation and creativity. That's what we do it at my company at FutureThink. Mm-hmm. And when people go onto our site and then they call us, inevitably, the first thing they ask us is, okay, which is the lie? Mm-hmm. So they, people like that. You know, at the end of the day, yes, they can hear all the corporate jargon about who you are and what you do, but they want to, people by people, right? And they want to know who you are and your background, and it's just a nice conversation starter. Well, you know, you mentioned about the fact that uh, your company works with innovation and change. Now, so you talk a lot about, I mean, I was looking at your TED Talk, I looked at your book, which we'll get into in a minute, and your mm-hmm. company. And to be honest, it's all about innovation and change. And I feel like the word innovation gets thrown around like the word oh. entrepreneur and millennial, which I hate that word. But anyway, <laughs> you know, people think they're so cool when they use those words. Oh, millennial and entrepreneur, like it's some fad but most people don't actually know what they're talking about when they say it. i mean what is what does innovation mean to you lisa yeah well first of all i concur that so many people use use the word it's so overused in fact i'll tell you when i go on and i speak to people mm. i'll say how many people are sick of hearing about innovation 
and I raise my hand too, say, I'm completely tired about it. Let me tell you what innovation is. It's making sure that change is a choice. You know, being innovative is doing something new and different and then taking action on it. And really what holds us, it's not about, about understanding it, but it's about understanding what holds you back from doing it. Because all of us, I think, are capable of innovation, but we are very resistant to change, right? Humans like status quo. They like stasis. Where our bodies, physiological, we, we are designed for that. So there's a, there's a real human fight or flight thing when we are confronted with something new to resist it until we understand it. Right. And the thing about entrepreneurs, to use that word, and innovators is they understand it quickly and then they're not afraid of it. So my job is really not to make people innovative, but frankly, to get them comfortable with change and to challenge their assumptions because that's what holds people back from doing it. They, all of us can be innovative, however you want to define that, whether it's coming up with a new product or a new business or a new life. Right. I mean, you shared a story. It's, it's being able to do that. You shared a story about the monkeys with the banana on the roof to illustrate mm. that point. Can you share that here? I love that story. It's so, you know, I'll give an hour speech, and the one thing people will come up to me afterwards is say, God, I really love that monkey story. The so, monkey story, right. Uh, yeah, let me tell you. It. So it, the, the thing about this monkey story is I can't take credit. It's, a, it's an old story that I heard about from, believe it or not, a nuclear engineer who worked at a German power plant. And mm. this was outside of Dusseldorf. And so it goes like this. He said, he, we were talking and I said, what is holding you back from change at your company? And what, how would you describe the environment there? And he said, let me tell it to you in a story. And it goes like this. There was a scientist and he had 10 monkeys in a cage. And he decided to perform an experiment on um, groupthink and the dynamics of the group. One day he put a banana on top of the cage. And of course, all the monkeys fought for the banana. As soon as one of them got the banana, he let that monkey eat it. But then he poured a pitcher of water on the other nine monkeys in the cage. And of course, monkeys don't like that. So they yeah. were mad. Mm. They were screeching and mad. Next day, same thing. Monkey, they put a banana on top of the cage. And one monkey goes to get it. Whoever gets it first, that monkey got to eat it, pours water on the remaining nine monkeys in the cage. Well, you know, monkeys are smart, and by the end of the week, any monkey that would go for the banana when it was put on top of the cage, the, all the other monkeys would pull it down because they didn't want to get doused with the water. So the scientists saw this and said, hmm, these monkeys are smart. I'm going to change this experiment. Each week, I'm going to take one of the monkeys out, and I'm going to put a new monkey in and see what happens. So the next week, he puts a new monkey in, takes no monkey out. Of course, what's the first thing the new monkey does? goes for the banana, right. tries to get up there, all the monkeys pull him down. And at the end of that week, that new monkey goes, go, oh, don't go for that banana. And at the end of the 10 weeks, the scientist now has 10 new monkeys in the cage. And what he found is that none of the monkeys would go for the banana. But of course, none of them knew why. Hmm. And what's interesting is when you hear that story, and it kind of washes over people, they slowly realize, oh my God, I'm like a monkey. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, so much of us, we, we don't mean to be this way, but we become slave to these rules and assumptions and, well, gosh, that, that rule's been around forever or someone must have put that in place for a reason. And we just blindly follow along, but we don't question it. And my point is why? Because some rules are, they're very good at the time, but they might have outlived themselves. So we need to get into the habit of questioning things and getting rid of things that 
that aren't working rather than living with things just because it's a legacy. Can you give some examples of rules that people have kind of, you know, held onto that we really should be letting go of? Sure. There's many things. Like we, we do this one exercise. It's my favorite. I love it. And I will tell you, everyone else loves it in the company. It's called Kill a Stupid Rule. <laughs> and the beauty of it is... You're very like into we killing, talking, I must say. I, I like to be provocative because that's what makes people pay attention. Right. So um, it's very simple. The idea is you give people 30 minutes, whatever time you want, and say, if you could kill any rules within the company, what would they be? And what's amazing is how many things people come up with. Because we all know that there's dumb things that get in their way. But what's interesting is when you ask them what kind of rules they came up with, many of them are rules, but many of them aren't. They're reports, like status reports, weekly meetings, dress codes, expense reporting, um, contracts that are one size fits all when we could have a workaround. And um, in, so what I'm getting at is it depends on the company what specific rule people come up with, but usually the biggest ones that that people reference are the annoying ones, right? They're the status meeting. They're the redundant report. They're the, re they're the required hour-long session we have to have when it could have been done in an email. It's, right. it, it's the hiring practice that someone assumed um, you couldn't hire um, a family member to work at the company. And another person looks at you and says, who told you that? That's not a rule. It's these assumptions people have. So what's interesting about this kind of exercise is, one, it gets rid of things that people assume are just rules and two it starts a discussion of where did you get that assumption from because often there's a very good reason why a rule was put in place but it now may have outlived its time right and on that basis you wrote a book called kill the company correct because you love killing. Correct. so i love killing. And, and by the way if you come up with a sequel you, you could be called a serial killer uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> i'll think about it yeah um can you, can you describe to our listeners what exactly the, the book is about, Kill the Company? I mean, besides for going on a killing spree, what, what, what is the book about? So the idea is, is that we spend so much of our days um, with innovation, trying to create more, when I think often the first step with innovation is getting rid of or creating less. You know, all the things that we put in place to help us better innovate, these structures, policies, reports, governing bodies, are all important. But unfortunately, they often are the very things that put a chokehold on our efforts. And I think before you start off in innovation or before you start off on your annual strategic planning, start with getting rid of things, doing an audit, calling back of what's not working so you can create that space for change to happen. People's to-do lists are too long. They don't have time. That's the one thing they don't have. It's not that they don't want to innovate. They don't have time to do it. So the only way you're going to be able to help them is by giving them thoughtful, simple ways and permission, by the way, permission is right. important, to get rid of stuff so they can make the rest of it happen. People feel like, um, again, that more is valuable thing, that they will be penalized if they get rid of stuff. No one gets rewarded for doing less, so why should I do that? And that's where, that's where the issues come from. So Kill the Company is trying to give them structured ways to think about less as being valuable and um, ways to get rid of stuff so they can make real change happen. So we're not killing the company. Essentially, we're just killing the stupid rules in the company. And, and we're giving people permission to stop being so politically correct. So here's what I mean by kill the company. Mm -hmm. The idea behind kill the company is um, it's giving people an out-of-company experience. It's giving them an outside-in mentality and giving them a mandate 
to identify the things that aren't working. So stop being so politically correct and and telling me all the strengths you have and the opportunities you have. And Why don't you tell me the weaknesses and how you're going to get rid of them? And why don't I mandate that you do that first? So kill the company is if name your number one competitor, pretend that you are them. And now with their hat on or their mentality, I want you to look back at your own company and kill it. What would you do if you were the competitor right now to put yourself out of business? Hmm. And people love it. It's it's like this war mentality that they get on where they actually have to go in and attack the things that aren't working, but in a productive way with a you know a strategic goal in mind. And it it's very um, purposeful and productive. I mean, I think it all makes sense for large organizations, but just to sort of be aware that obviously most people listening to this podcast are startups or small businesses yeah how can this help startups and small businesses oh i i'm so glad you brought that up the same way because it is amazing even in a, in a small company like mine i have 17 people that are full-time and part-time mm-hmm. and each year at the beginning of the year uh, with just a core team here in in New York, five people. We do the session, the strategic planning session. We call it the future of future think. And we go through all our financials and our goals and our plans for the year. But we end the day with killing our own company and killing stupid rules. And I will tell you that takes up the majority of the afternoon. And we are such a small group. And the reason why is, especially for entrepreneurs, you're so busy chasing things and trying new things. It's almost the opposite problem of big companies who can't get anything done. You try so many things that it's very important to call and get rid of the stuff to make the space for trying more new things the next year. So I I encourage people here on the phone or on the the call or podcast to, to try it. And I think they'll be amazed with the stuff that they can stop doing immediately. Can you give like, I mean, you've worked with a lot of people. What do you think are probably some of the most drastic things that uh, rules, I should say, that people have killed, so to speak? Um, what, what are some of the most drastic rules that they've killed that have made a huge difference to their, to their success? Well, you know, if you're talking a large organization, I can tell you working even with a pharmaceutical organization, which is one of the most regulative, regulatory and compliance mandated type organizations, they actually reworked their R&D process based on killing their company because, you know, most big companies scale is their issue and they, they come up with all these one size fits all, let's make a template for everything stuff. And the reality is it gets so big to accommodate so many people that the simplest things become complex. So right. I they feel like actually the people redid listening, R&D. People listening here though, I feel like to them R&D is, is like over the head in a way not not over the head but it's just not as as um you're right i i would say what about things like checking emails like every two th- minutes and or checking facebook updates is that that's kind of like an example of of killing the rules killing you don't have to check your email every five minutes tom relax no one's going to miss you for five minutes right so yeah, let me tell you some things, that, though, what I want to get to is on the smaller scale, which is what you find regardless of whether you're big or small is it's not organizational complexity that kills you, it's individual. And what I mean by that is it's the small things that we do every day that we don't need to do. You, um, There are simple things you can do, like unsubscribe. You can create folders to, to put things in uh, and junk folders to get that stuff out of your inbox. You can try and check your email only at certain times of the day. Mm. You can... I, I like the idea of um, try to make only have one recurring meeting a week 
with my team, we only have one recurring meeting a week because I don't need more than that. We only have one status report that we have that we do, and it can't be more than two pages long. So I, we try and make things less. We try and we actually review all our processes and say we have to cut 50%, which ones will they be? So we try and be very extreme so we make ourselves cut back. Right. We try and make it so no call is more than 30 minutes. We try and make it so no no meeting is longer than an hour because we, we tend to think that things have to be longer. And if we force it to be shorter, it makes people focus on what matters. Right. I mean, just to share um, one, one thing that I killed today, a rule, which I'm actually very happy about. Um, I noticed that in my Gmail um, I, I always had like a couple of hundred emails sitting in my inbox and you know, every day I just spend time just sitting there going archive, archive, archive. But I found a rule or, or a, a, I guess it's like a, an app within Gmail that you can actually, whenever you reply to an email, it will automatically archive the email that they sent you. Great. So that's amazing. I mean, things like that, tools like that, I, I would encourage you know those listening to find those types of tools that will just save you hours and hours of time doing stupid things like archiving emails. Um, mm-hmm. Can you think of some other examples for, for our listeners that are on the startup stage or the small business stage, some other tools that they could use? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do like that idea of, uh, of archiving, unsubscribing, those kinds of things. I, I would say... Um, as, when it comes to social media, especially for small businesses, young businesses, um, less is more. So one of the things I have always found when I interview people for a marketing role or when I go and consult at small businesses, they're trying to do everything. We got to be on Twitter, Instagram, mm. Facebook. We got uh, you name it, right? We got to be in Snapchat. We got to be in LinkedIn. My reaction to that is pick two. That's it. And focus on those things because what's happening is people are trying to be everywhere and they're not doing them very well. So again, this gets to do less and less is more. Also, I try and repurpose things. So what we do is we write something for an article for a publication and then we repurpose snippets of it in the different places that we market. So we're trying to reinforce the same message rather than trying to do uh, big things over and over and over again. The, the other thing I would say is um, get to bullet points don't write in long frame. Like if something takes longer than a paragraph for someone to read, you're you're not being focused. Hmm. The other thing we try and do here is um, try and actually make your emails um, as long as your text. Meaning, can you make your email um, all fit in the subject line? Well, that's we a do good that challenge. here. And the other thing we do is, um, especially with dispersed teams, if you don't want people to reply, write in the email subject line NNTR. No need to respond. And that way you don't get people writing back the political, got it, FYI, thanks, here's my two cents. <laughs> yeah, you're just that. Send, Yeah, you hate that. Again, and so what email, you're trying to do is thanks. teach behavior. Right. 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 And also, I, I noticed you mentioned in a TED Talk, you said, make simplicity a habit. Can mm. you explain, elaborate more on that, please? You know, what do you mean by make simplicity a habit? So what's interesting is in October, I have my next book coming out and it is not killer, believe it or not. It's called Why Simple Wins. And uh, it's about getting out of the complexity trap so you can get to work that matters. And the the premise is this. Imagine what you could do with your day um, if you didn't spend so much time in meetings and emails. Hmm. And what happens with complexity is we create the beast that we become a slave to. And... uh, 
simplicity is the one school is the one skill that all of us have, but we never train for it and we never allow people to do it. And I think that we need to make simplification a habit because frankly, I think it will give people a strategic advantage. It will make them happier at work. And frankly, it also, we've seen through research, it makes customers more likely to recommend you. You can charge a higher price and it makes them more loyal to you. Right. So there are all these benefits of simplification. And um, besides being a real business and strategic advantage, frankly, simplification is the way that you define culture. And you don't realize this because we think culture is... Um, oh, it's, it's foosball tables, it's beanbag chairs, it's whiteboards. That's not culture, right? It's not organic <laughs> food in the cafeteria. It's, it's not, not happy hour. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of it. Culture is the work you do every day. That's it. The best places to work are the places where people feel like they do meaningful work. Mm. And we need to spend more time on getting to the work that matters. And how we need to do that is by simplifying. So if you can start to make simplification the work you do every day, the way you operate, frankly, your, your operating system, those are going to be the companies going forward that are the most successful. And what's, what was fascinating from my research was um, the amount of companies now that are creating simplification teams. And in some companies, they are um, hiring chief simplification officers because people can't take on anymore. And they are starting to be formal about how they wrestle the complexity addiction that we have. Well. Wow. You know, uh, Lisa, I think you mentioned once that one of the first questions you ask a, a, a client, essentially, is what do you spend your day doing? Correct. Right? So I'm going to ask you, Lisa, what do you spend your day doing? Well, not meetings and emails, that's for sure. We spend very <laughs> little time in meetings. I spend a lot of my time look uh, for new business. I spend a lot of my time speaking. And I spend a lot of my time doing research on simplification because my job is to go out and kind of evangelize and preach the gospel of this, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, to really, you know, I'm passionate about this. I think this is something that could really change people, their satisfaction at work, and frankly, their satisfaction in their life. So I make sure that uh, the people on my team and myself, I'm spending my time researching the topic that I go out and speak about. So I, you know, when we see that people spend, and this is a, from a study recently in HBR, 48% of their time in meetings, 26% of their time on email, 18% of their time doing unproductive work, and the rest, which is I think less than 14%, doing meaningful things, what that says to me is, I've gotta make sure I don't create a culture that's dependent on meetings, emails, even if the clients that we work with are. So we make a habit of picking up the phone, we make a habit of sending emails that are short and to the point, and we make a habit of actually trying to not do meetings only if it's necessary. Right. And it's interesting that you that you we're talking about this now because just recently um, I found a new way to to run my podcast show. You see mm. most podcasters what they do is they do a um, they, they they record the interview and then afterwards they edit the interview, they add the intro music and then the outro music and it's a whole like post production it takes it could take hours sometimes. Um, with with me, I, I'm sure you noticed at the beginning when I uh, uh, when we started the interview, I, I I played the intro music, so it's actually recording as we're going. So the production's happening live rather than having a whole post production, and, and I basically save hours of production time. Um, and Great. It's yeah, so that's something that I've I've learned to do, and I'm hopefully going to be teaching it in a course, a podcasting course, um, at some point in the next couple of weeks. Um, but um, it's been really nice. Lisa, what, first of all, what's the best way for my listeners to get in touch with you? 
So the best way would be to uh, email me at innovate at futurethink.com and someone on my team will make sure that we get it. And uh, visit our website, futurethink.com. Right, but I would just say, Lisa, online. I just want to say to our listeners here that if you write an email to Lisa, you have to fit it in the subject line, okay? You're uh, not allowed to use the body of the email. It has to fit in the subject uh, line. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try that now, actually. It sounds, sounds like a very good idea. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. So there's an email, and how else can they get in touch with you? Uh, futurethink.com, of course, visit us at our website and, um, and go on Amazon. You can actually look for the book there and, um, and of course, Why Simple Wins come out, but you can pre-order it to start to, to see that there, there's a whole book and a toolkit that is coming with it because I, I really believe in not just people reading stuff but doing stuff. So I'm excited about that. Very cool. So I'm going to put those both of those books in my show notes as well as the website as well. Um, Lisa, thanks so much for letting me pick your brain. Thank you to all my listeners for tuning in. I'm looking forward to the day when I'll be picking your brain. You've been listening to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast. Inspiration without perspiration is like a tiger without teeth. So to put these ideas into action, head over to danielgeffen.com.